This is episode 30 of Free as in Freedom for Tuesday, August 28th, 2012. Hi, I'm Karen Sandler. And I'm Bradley Coon. This is Free as in Freedom. So, uh, Karen, uh, you're going to take the lead this episode. You're going to tell us. Oh, I, actually, before we do that, we should mention that we don't have the guest. But we do have the guest. Not in 3-0. Not in 3-0, but in 3-1. Yes. So next it's show. It's in the can, as they say. Well, not completely. Well, but the interview is. No, it's well, because in the can means it's done. Like, it's the editing's done. And Dan Lynch oh, oh, is does not that, editing. In the can means that... Well, you know, they called it in the can because they put the final film copy in, oh, a, in a canister I see. to ship I thought out. it was just the footage. No, so. in, in the can, I think, well, we'll check Wikipedia, Wikipedia to verify this, but I believe the phrase in the can was created in the early film industry as, a, as something to tell, to indicate that they'd actually finished the editing and the movie was ready to go to theaters because it was in the canisters that they sent to the theaters. Right. I knew that can meant, you know, I knew what that meant, but I thought, well, anyway, uh, we've done the recording, um, uh, but uh, but there's a... This very day as we record. Yeah, Because we're in the past and you're in the future. Always fun. So, uh, but so, but yeah, there's actually, and, and thank you again to Dan Lynch because there is some editing. There's significantly more editing than there normally is in that one. So, um, you know, we'll really, be editing a great we show. We really for you appreciate it next episode. But in this episode, we're going to hear mostly from Karen about. Uh, well, well tell I don't us know, actually. About. We talked about the fact that we would we, we both had issues to talk about in this. Um, you know, Bradley suggested when we were talking about all of the different possibilities because there are, we have actually a lot of topics that. Um, we've got in the queue to talk about for different episodes of Freeze and Freedom. But, um, but Bradley actually suggested that we, um, that we talk a little bit about some of the press that Gnome has been getting lately. Um, because that's been kind of interesting and, um, that it might be a good opportunity to sort of not just talk about, um, you know, the way Gnome is perceived in the press and, 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 you know, Gnome's marketing efforts, but also to talk about sort of the tech press generally. I don't know if you really want to talk I, about that. I do that. want to talk about that in a minute, but why don't we start with what's happened with Gnome? I haven't read every last article. I, I kind of got sick of reading them in part because I kind of know some, the, I know the real story because I talked to you. Right. So I know what's really going on, uh, but I've been pretty aghast myself at, at the level to which there's what I would call link baiting. But before I get into that, why don't you just explain what what sort of what 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 happened? Like, how did this start? How does a thing like this start? Well, Kinda. it's interesting because um, uh, Herman Puck Camano, um, actually, he was on the GNOME board. He's very active in GNOME. Um, he uh, he he's a real fan of this um, of this uh, handbook called the Debunking Myths Handbook. Um, that he sent to me, and one of the things that the um, and sent around to to folks generally, where it evaluates, you know, ways that you can correct misperceptions and ways that you can deal with facts by suggesting I, you know, uh, sorry, ways that you can deal with myths by suggesting facts. And what's fascinating, and I recommend that people read it because what's fascinating about it is that one of the things that it says is try to avoid stating the myths as much as possible. So you want to, you don't want to state, if you can possibly avoid it, you don't want to talk about 
the the statements that were incorrect because it reinforces people's ideas about them. I'm not I'm going to do that here because we're you know I think our, our our listeners are very savvy and like I don't you know I I think we should we should talk about the issues. But like I I immediately when you asked me that I was sort of like am I really going to start with talking about the you know right. the negative stuff because there were a lot of misconceptions um, you know involved and when you start talking about yeah, and actually, I just connected this up. Something's happening in the United States. So um, by the time you hear this, uh, th- th- this will probably be playing out because the Republican convention will have started. But this is the whole thing. I, I mean, I- the funny thing is, is that I've been watching this whole Mitt Romney tax return things, and I would like to see Mitt Romney's tax returns. But on the other hand, it's so much similar to the Obama birth certificate thing, where yeah. where there's this pressure of of somebody puts it out there that Obama's not bored in the U.S. And then Harry Reid, in his statement, he puts it out there. He says, he says, people have said that Mitt Romney didn't pay taxes many years ago, and that's why he won't release his tax returns, or didn't pay enough taxes, or, or didn't pay taxes at all, whatever it is, right? And so he puts this out there, and, and unsubstantiated, and then it creates this ball of its own. And it, it's, it's been interesting for me to watch, because as, a, as somebody who just believes in, in, in science and fact, I'm sort of yeah. like, this is not that different from what the, the, the group of people, Tea Party people who are doing to Obama with his birth certificate. Like, there's no evidence that he's not born in the U.S. Yeah, and it's so powerful because basically what's what's worse is that when people try to correct it, they say, you know, some people have asserted that, yeah. you know, Obama is not born in the or whatever. And then what people hear is Obama is not born in the United States, even though, so the, this, the handbook actually says that, um, that when you present people with correcting information for a short period of time after they've read it, they may have a better ability to state what the facts were in relation to the original myth. But that as time passes, they remember the fact that they heard that statement again. And so it reinforces the myth. Mm-hmm. So it's a really interesting thing. And I'm, I'm still, you know, I'm, as you, as, as our listeners know, I'm a lawyer by training. I don't have really much of a marketing or press, uh, and certainly not a psychology background. So I'm trying to wrap my head around this stuff because I think that there's a lot of truth to this debunking myths idea and that I think we can get into a lot of trouble by doing things that are natural to us is probably, you know, coming from a science background. So like, you know, uh, my natural reaction is, oh, that's clearly wrong. Here are 12 facts that clearly show, but what the, you know, that, that this isn't true. But then when you look at the debunking myth handbook, it says the more facts you give people, the less they're able to process them. So in fact, if you give people loads of facts that say, oh, well, the, this is actually how, you know, how, how it really went. If you, if you limit it to just two or three, you're going to be much better off. It's so fascinating. Yeah. And all of these psychology studies show that this, this is the case. And it's really counterintuitive for people like us who are coming from more science backgrounds. Yeah, and and well, I also think there's a certain groupthink that happens that because we're dealing with a community, uh, particularly with we talk about the insular free software community, uh, most people coming from some sort of scientific background. Yet there's a certain groupthink where all the processes that you're talking about actually do occur, oh, despite yes. the fact that any individual is probably convincible in a normal scientific argument sort of way. But the group as a whole is not is not it's not able to change the zeitgeist, as it were. Yeah, and also I think when you Which is disturbing. Well, and it's also just hard to prepare materials that are effective. And I guess, you know, one of the things that's that is so apparent in free software is that we don't, you know, we don't have the skills or the resources to deal with that. Like this is one of those things in particular where community based free software projects lose. Right? Because we don't have we're not run by any single company that has a marketing force. You know, we can't hire media relations generally. I know some nonprofits do. 
Um, you well, know, I mean, I, I actually have a point on that, but I, before I, I get to that, because that's related to the the thing about what's wrong with the tech press. But but it, it, as much as you're willing, given what we've just discussed, <laughs> um, and I'll throw in what I've read, if, if because I can be you know be more be less likely to follow the the, the uh, myth debunking rules um, but but as much as you're willing can you talk about what um what, what, you know what 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 it is why we're talking about this okay so, so i mean well so so right so i'm just going to i'm i'm sorry herman and um you know and others and please you know bear with me when i talk about some of this stuff um because there there is there is this issue of you know and and i know Bradley, you do this too you you avoid linking or mentioning straight uh, or linking to um, you know, articles that you, you think are, are, I do actually. And so, yeah. so maybe we won't link to these in the show notes. We'll, we'll do that not to give the hit count, even with a no link. Yeah. So, and I'll just say there was a, there was a, a GNOME developer who posted a blog post leading up to Guadec say, and I referenced this a little bit in our Oscon and Guadec, um, episode, um, who said that, um, that GNOME as a project is in deep trouble and, um, he's frustrated by it, and because of that, he won't be coming to Guadalajara, even though he was scheduled. And he's a to, Red Hat employee. He's a Red Hat employee, and he was scheduled to speak. So he actually was on the schedule, um, and we, you know, he announced that he wasn't going to Guadalajara in this blog post. Um, and the, and he gives us his reason. He claims that Gnome is in deep trouble, and that's why he's not going. Yes. Okay. So, so the number, and he lists a, he lists a, a so, few reasons, so, some of which have merit and some of which don't. Right. So as a scientist, my first yeah. question is sort of like, well, why, why did he, did he suddenly come to this conclusion? Because if he scheduled himself to speak, he must have believed the time he's, he, he submitted a talk that Gnome wasn't in deep trouble, because why would he give a talk? Unless he was going to give a talk about why Gnome's in deep trouble, which is all the more reason to go and give the talk to communicate to the community why there's a problem, if well, he believes is, there's a problem, yeah, right? Well, and that's what a, was so tough about it, was it also came out right at the time where we all went to Guadec. Right, so you're right? not able to respond quickly in, in the quick news cycles. No, and what's, and, you know, and what's amazing about it is that, you know, is that my experience at Guadec, as you guys heard in the last episode, was so, was so opposite to, to the sentiment in the blog post. Like all of the, you know, Guadec was just this, overwhelmingly wonderful experience of high level respectful conversation about the future of GNOME. And, you know, I think people expressed some of the, um, you know, we talked about some of the concerns that were raised in the blog post, which are not new. And in fact, you know, many of them are, are quite old, um, you know, and, and still need to be worked on. But, you know, but the, the diverse participation of people who were concerned about the future of GNOME and, in, you know, interested in exploring different ways of, of going forward, you know, just were, were extremely, the exact opposite of the sentiments expressed well, in the and, blog post. And does, basically, I mean, I sort of see this as a narrative that has a certain problem. Because a year ago, when I, a little more than a year ago now, when I went to Desktop Summit, it was right around the moment when Linus Torvalds made his first attack right. against GNOME. And and the, the interesting thing to me about that was the, the level of credit that Linus was giving. Like, I don't, I, I think Linus is, is, is a brilliant engineer, um, and he's a, he's a very talented free software project leader, uh, but leading free software projects in 
basically the low level space lower down in the stack as it were is a very different uh, process than leading a free software project higher up and his opinions about a free software project higher up the stack are, are less valuable to me like if he were commenting on something that's like right in like 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 a like util linux or or something that's right above linux i would sort of be much more interested in what he had to say because he interacts with that software much more directly mm -hmm. as a developer and as somebody who's an expert in the field i don't see linus torvald as an expert in desktops now and this is I, i'm going to give uh, RMS some props on this because I think that this is a classic operating system versus uh, kernel argument because right. people think of Linus Torvald as the author of the operating system when he's not. He's the author of the kernel. Uh, the original author of the kernel is now has met, you know, thousands and thousands of contributors. But uh, and so and so I, I think that that's one of the credibility questions that I would ask about this development. I mean, I, I mean, I think I would want to look at these this blog post in a sort of critical way and say, well, well what does he know? Uh, what does he believe he knows? What is his evidence? And what you know, is he far enough in the community to have an actual analysis that we, we should we should heed? Yeah. And, you know, I mean, one of the things that was my favorite about that desktop summit that you mentioned, one of my favorite talks during that desktop summit was a talk by Nick Richards, um, where he um, he actually listed all of these quotes, which I thought when he first posted them in his slides were quotes about GNOME 3 because GNOME 3 had just come out and it had received a lot of criticism. But it turned out that those quotes were actually about GNOME 2. Yeah. And it was really like a clever way of framing it. And I think that part of it is that when you change the way, you know, especially when you change the way, um, you know, a, a graphics interface works and people have to learn something new, people, people, you know, uh, it, there's right. an adjustment period. And indeed, I remember, I, I remember a guy I used to work for who was obsessed at saying software regressions. And this person wasn't a software developer. Um, just, just, a, just a user fan mm -hmm. of free software. And he would obsessively say, say, there's this regression and this regression. Um, and I, I, I fell into that, that sort of, um, the, the, uh, the princess bride quote. I said, this word, it does not mean what you think it means, right? <laughs> because it doesn't mean, it means that it doesn't, it doesn't work. The new version of the software doesn't work in the exact same way as I liked in the old version. But that's not a regression. Right. right. And, and that conflation, I mean, that kind of conflation is something I think that the GNOME 3 has been a real victim of because, because the, the, you can't call GNOME 3 works differently than GNOME 2 as a regression, right? Because it's not a regression in, in the scientific sense. It's not something that was a, a working testable feature, uh, to use a word, uh, uh, that, that now is not there anymore. Uh, it's it's different. It's a different thing. It's the, there. It's it's a feature change. The, the the feature. The goal of how the program works has changed. And I, I think people conflate that in their minds. They call something a bug. I mean, it's the bug or feature argument kind of yeah. question. Yeah. And you know, and what's funny is that we actually, you know, we do get emails at GNOME, of course, where people say the things that you know that you've heard. We get a few emails now and again saying, "Why have you ruined, you know, the GNOME I love?" We also get a lot of emails saying. Wow, we love what you've done, but those aren't the things that get picked up by the press. Like we, we really, we do get you know compliments all the and time. And the reason I never said that is, as Karen sits here and I, you know, she's got her computer up uh, running GNOME three, and I've got my computer up running. As you can tell, Karen here, the one part of GNOME two I have right there is right. that panel. Everything else is Sawfish and my list yep. uh, configurations. Oh, and I guess I have this desktop that I never use, which is the GNOME two desktop. But from my point of view, because I know GNOME is free software, like I don't, I don't feel. That, that I've never, I've given to GNOME Foundation, but I've never really paid for GNOME in, in any real sense. So from my point of view, like I have no 
right to maintenance on the GNOME 2 branch that I'm running here in Debian Stable. So from my point of view, when that panel goes away, like I know I'm that, that panel's not going to work anymore someday because it's going to bit rot because nobody's probably maintaining the GNOME 2 branch. I know there's people who fork it. You use so but, little. I, I just, but I use so little. It won't really matter. It'll probably disappear. But I'm not going to be upset when, when I don't have the, the little panel. I do actually like the GNOME 2 panel. And when that doesn't work anymore, I'm not going to be upset at the GNOME project, and I have trouble understanding people who are upset at the GNOME project because, because I mean, they didn't pay for it. I mean, I can understand well, if you're a customer. This and is you, a side you know, side point because I, mean, I think I want point, people. Right, yeah. I really do because I like that people care. Yeah, I want people to care. I mean, I think even just because you don't pay for it doesn't mean that you can uh, be passionate no about something. And that's you know, true. but like, I didn't pay for support. Like if, if they love. wanted to get a bunch of people together and pay for support of a GNOME 2 branch, they could do that because it's free software, right? That's they're allowed to do that. But expecting the project to do exactly what you want to do and then not being a participant in it, right? Because when somebody comes along after the fact uh, and says, I mean, I'm actually off more on the Lena Torvalds thing than this other thing, but it's sort of like you come after the fact and say, oh, what they're doing is crazy and I think it's horrible. And whatever and then but you weren't there to participate because it was an open community that you could come to yep. but I guess some of the arguments people are making and uh, I'm going to believe the Harry Reid thing I apologize I've heard people make arguments that GNOME is not an open community that it's a Red Hat control right. project and that's things that's, that have been said yeah. and I'm repeating again I'm doing exactly what Karen says we shouldn't do which is correct is I'm repeating a myth that I have no evidence for but yeah. So, well, I, I, I'll, we'll, we'll, yeah. do, we'll talk about that. But I just wanted to say that we just, you know, GNOME celebrated its 15th birthday yeah. um, very recently. And we put up a little happy birthday gnome.org website. And one of my favorite things that I, I giggled so hard when we were putting it together and I found this quote to add under the GNOME 2 timeline. Um, I did add this quote um, that someone had said about GNOME 2. I find this default configuration boneheaded at best. It was really like. Who said that? Um, I. Oh, we I don't remember. Okay, it's, it's just um, it wasn't. It wasn't. It was. It was in. A, it was in like a, a highly cited new uh, blog mm -hmm. post from the time. Yeah. So it was. It was very funny. Um. Just, you know, we we were giggling as we wrote it because mm -hmm. you know we sort of cognizant of the fact that people will continue to criticize us and have criticized us for a long time, and will probably continue to criticize us, and you know, hopefully, we'll create enough you know useful software that people like to use that we'll, we'll laugh about it in whenever, in many years when we do the, you know, we go GNOME to GNOME 4. 4. Yeah. So, uh, and it's a joke that you always make about GPLv3 as well that, you know, that people will be happy with GPLv3 when GPLv4 yeah, is released. Yeah, I wasn't, I, I actually can't take credit for coming up with that, uh, I, that, that point, but that point was very clear. And, and, uh, and the first time I heard it, I was, uh, it was, it was very true that, that people liked V2 more when V3 came out. Um, suddenly people who had been critics of V2 were suddenly pro V3. I mean, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, some people, I said that totally wrong. People who had been critics of V2, um, suddenly loved V2 and hated V3. Um, and, and Linus is a great example. I mean, Linus was sort of a, um, I mean, he, he's quoted as saying, uh, that, he would have, if he had known FreeBSD existed, he would have worked on BSD. Um, he didn't, he GPL'd it only because he was a fan of GCC, but he regretted that decision. He said things like that. And then, when v3 comes out he's suddenly v2 was the best license ever and i'm happy with it and i love it you know and so and so i i think that's the same thing you're seeing literally with the same version numbers uh two and three yep, with yep. gnome it's it's, people it's really um, it's really just amazing um so to get back to your point about about red hat actually yeah. um, I, I did want to ask about that because that's something that's been said and, and it's true i mean the thing i can observe and the thing i observe as a scientist i see a lot of uh, prominent GNOME developers are red hat employees and mm -hmm. that's certainly true there there is a as far as numbers of people that I've met, 
I know that the number of people I've met who work on GNOME and work for Red Hat is higher than any other company by by a large amount. And people I've just but met. But that's not that's not the um, but that's so, anecdotal too. That's not yeah. Scientific. And what I was going to actually say is that you know what I was hinting at in the last episode about Guadec was that Red Hat had you know less than ten percent of participation at Guadec. So, you know, I didn't, I didn't say that out because I wanted to talk about, you know, there were, there were other companies that had mm-hmm. substantial participation. I don't feel like it's necessary to, to talk about any one company anyway in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, Red Hat does contribute a lot and we're really glad for their participation. Uh, but in that blog post, actually, the, fo- the, the two developers that were cited as having left Gnome and no longer being, um, you know, no longer being as active. And that was sort of the evidence of it's only a Red Hat project. Um, were, um, Emmanuel Abbasi and, um, and Vincent, Vincent, Unce, um, which was, is really funny because Vincent was actually a, a co-chair of Guadec, um, and there and very, very active, not having left at all, um, mm-hmm. the Gnome project. And in fact, while, um, you know, he announced that he's, he's, his job, um, you know, at his company is changing, but it's, um, you know, he's, he intends to work actually more on GNOME. So, yeah. um, and then Emanuela is on the board of GNOME. And while he's switched jobs and left, um, Intel is now at, uh, at Mozilla, he's as active as ever. So it's, it's, you know, you can't necessarily look at where people are employed per se for these software projects in terms of where, you know, whether they're active contributors. Right. It's very interesting. No, I mean, I presume he was talking about code, and I guess his argument would be that Emanuela is, is going to give less code now that he's not an Intel. I don't know. I it's interesting. But it's, it's funny Emmanuel as I said that. no, but... Yeah, it's probably... Well, well, I mean, the time will tell, certainly. Of but, course. But um, it's interesting because as I said that last statement that I was giving an anecdotal analysis, which is people I've met, I remembered from 2010 Dave Neary's uh, Gnome Census mm. that he did, which he basically applied many of the techniques that Greg KH uses as a regular matter of course against to figure out who who's contributed to Linux, he applied it to the GNOME code bases. And in fact, at the time, and this is going back to 2010, admittedly, uh, 23% of GNOME was written by people who, who had not, who had explicitly not declared an affiliation with any company at yep. all. And, and that was the, and that was the plurality of contributions. And that's what we find, what we found as far as participation at Guadac. Right. There was such a, I mean, so much of an independent, um, you know, of an, of an independent, uh, base. It, it's really, I mean, which, which, you know, inspires me as executive director. It makes me feel like I'm in the right place. And, and Red Hat's third on the list, right under two, the second, which is basically unknown affiliation. So, and Red Hat be, be, ends up being about as much at, at, at 17 versus 16% rounding off. Uh, Red Hat's at 16%, unknown affiliation is at 17%. But still, Red Hat's only 16% of the commits. And none uh, is over 23. all of, uh, and, and none is twenty three. So there's yeah. more un, there's certainly more unaffiliated people in mass uh, contributing to GNOME than uh, uh, Red Hat employees. Um, now certainly Red Hat is the largest corporate contributor because that's true. That's true. Just looking at the looking at the at the commit list. But that's even, that was company. even true back when um, back when uh, Canonical, um, you know, had hadn't forked. You know, hadn't hadn't come out with Unity yet. Right. right. This is pre Unity. They're pre Unity. Sure. Um, 
Right. And Canonical, and Canonical is way down the list, of course. Yeah. That was all the scandal at the yeah. time. I, I, the thing I loved Not about this, it, wasn't, it, was the, it was the big news was story the big about news. this census. But uh, the interesting thing to me was that Easel had, Easel historically had given more than Canonical. And, mo- and most of our listeners won't even know what Easel is. Easel, mm-hmm. Easel was a company found by a guy named Andy Hertzfeld, who was one of the first employees of Apple. I think he was employee number six at Apple, something like that. And he is, he's basically a free software convert now. Um, and he started Easel because he wanted to write um, great interface software for GNU Linux systems. And he wrote, he, he, his staff wrote most of Nautilus. And so yeah. even after all these years, the Nautilus code base has, you know, because of all that they contributed to Nautilus is, is, is still 1%. Yeah, we're them. still, you know, we're still working on the videos from Guadac. Um, for this Quadic 2012. Now, yeah, I yeah, want to be yeah. clear. We were just talking about Quadic 2010 because that's where Dave. Oh yeah, Dave yeah, yeah. Were, no, no, right. For this Quadic, and, and you'll hear um, when we release them that um, we had a history of GNOME talk uh, with uh, uh, Federico, Jonathan, and um, and Dave Mason. Um, now the thing, and, I, the thing uh, I wondered about, and you'll you'll hear some talk about Easel in there. I think it's worth listening to. Yeah, it's good. The funny thing, I say, I guess I guess Zimian uh, and Helix code were assumed by Novell contributions. Is that the deal on this on the survey? I, I don't know. I assume so. Because otherwise, <laughs> Zimian, I'm, I'm sure actually. it must be because Zimian and uh, and uh, and uh, although you guys don't use Bonobo anymore, so that was the big Zimian contribution. I mean, that's that, that when I first started using Gnome, Bonobo was the new technology, and Bonobo has since been deployed and deprecated. <laughs> Right, and with Sun on there, not Oracle, yeah, of course, because of well, when it was yeah. when it came when out. It came out yeah. Yeah. But uh, but I mean, I think I think this is hard data, and I'm going to link to the, the old GNOME census that, that that Dave did in this in this uh, in, in the show notes. But I mean, that's I mean, even I, I mean, it's interesting to note your thing is even I was sitting here giving anecdotal evidence when I knew of the existence of this hard evidence of how much is Red Hat in control, and the answer is, as far as code goes, uh, in 2010 was 16 percent, and I don't know, it's probably stayed about the same. I would guess. And I would say, you know, it's anecdotal for me to talk about Guadic, but it's a total different thing which is to say that we had real you know we had we had full day sessions that were open to everyone to talk about you know what direction that um, you know that gnome will go in in the future and it was it was widely attended by a diverse group of people you know um, who were all open to to conversations I know I you know and it's funny because a lot of the people who are super active in a volunteer way are you know are not affiliated with Red. I mean, a lot many you know some people. I don't want to diminish the contributions that are made by Red Hat employees, and many of them are doing it outside of the scope of their Red Hat employment. And I also want to say that too, like you know, there are cool people who work at Red Hat who are you know who are doing stuff outside the scope of their employment as volunteers, like um, like Marina who runs our outreach program for women that's not at all within the scope of her um, you know her employment at Red Hat as a developer. But she does it because she cares deeply about GNOME. Now, in the GNOME community, is the standard, like it is in many communities, that when you're doing stuff on your own uh, time, that you don't use your company email address? Or is that not as It's well really defined? mixed up. It's not well-defined. And right. it, it frustrates me a little bit. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes people are contributing um, you know, in the scope of their employment um, you know, and using, oh, and use and their, using their independent yeah. email address. And we actually have a policy, uh, which I like, but it's tough. But like the, um, so there's a policy um, for membership in the GNOME Foundation that we consider contributions made in the scope of your employment as personal contributions. So if you were employed by a company um, to do GNOME work, then you could become a member. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think that actually that works out the way it should, because I think that people, as they contribute to GNOME, even in the course of their employment, they wind up doing volunteer stuff and becoming active in our community. Becoming a member actually reinforces that and makes them do even more. So I think that's great. But like the, the things, like the areas that are totally like, I don't know, to me, seem like no reward type jobs are extremely diversified across, um, you know, across 
companies and independent um, people. So like, for example, the GNOME board, um, you know, we have a rule about the GNOME board not having more than, you know, a certain number of people from any one company, but that's never really been a problem because there's so many people volunteering, We've got, you know, people from different companies. I think last time, uh, most recently, the closest we had, we had two Oracle employees. But that's that's about it. So the the, the folks that are involved are are, are diverse, and they're I, to me being on a board of directors is like a thankless, you know. Really, I I try to avoid doing it not because it's thankless, but because it's a lot of work and it's a lot of obligation. Um, and these people all do it, um, and they're they're really um, diversely affiliated. And another example is our marketing team, who you know to me marketing is like the worst stuff that you can do. You know, it's it's just. Uh, it's a lot of work and, um, you know, and, you know, we do have, um, one or two people who are active in Red Hat, but they're really, that, that's about it. You know, the rest of the people who are, who care so deeply, who want to communicate why GNOME is so important are, are mostly people at different companies or people who are independent. And well, aren't, aren't a lot of the GNOME marketing team members now people who have come through the internship program? In the not past? a lot, but, um, but or like two or three. Um, are indeed people who came through our outreach program for women. And that's one thing that was great about Guadac is, and I think I mentioned this last yeah. time, was that, um, you know, we had such an amazing, um, turnout of new contributors who were part of our outreach programs, our summer of code and also outreach program for women. And what's cool is that these people are, are still, you know, in the last 24 hours, I've seen a tremendous body of work coming from former OPW people who have no concrete incentive to continue to do work. It's just they've, They've started to care about our project and, you know, and want to contribute and communicating to the world about GNOME is, I think, one of the most, you know, the fact that people who are independent care so deeply about doing that is to me one of the best examples of, you know, how this is not the case, you know. Okay. So, um, so, so, I mean, that sort of covers the, the first thing that's raised. And then as it sort of cascades, there's these other comments that are made. About uh, because because there there is this initiative which uh, which uh, doesn't have a name yet I think, but it, there's another name that's been used and again I'm right. trying to avoid the myth that exactly. that I have an objection to. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it's really a future of yeah. gnome. Yeah, and, mean, and there's sort of this future gnome initiative, and it's 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 been it, it was sort of pre-announced in a blog post by one developer, and then the press picked it up, and then they're criticizing it based on the name, which is a name that I know has been talked about entirely. That so of course FSF objects to, and those of you who want to go figure out what this name is, you'll probably figure it out. So 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 there's this goofiness of FSF has an objection, uh, which we've registered long long ago. That Gnome Foundation has generally been agreeable to, and in fact agreed basically not to use the name, uh, and then. It got used by somebody in a random blog post, and then gets hardcore linkage from tech journalists picking it up, and then suddenly it's you're being and it's fed actually, a name. It's a very polarizing name too, right. and so it's, pointlessly. It's, it's pointlessly. But on the other side, you know, some people are rallying because of the negative press, also are rallying around it. So it's sort of hard now to, you know, it's 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 a tough problem. You know, like, but yeah, so, so, so I, I mean, I just don't, you know, so the press really has a lot of influence and it's really tough. So, um, so one of the reasons why this seemed relevant to talk about now is in part because we had all this press, but also, um, you know, there's an article that I think is going to come out, um, right before or at the, on the same day as our, as, as this episode. And I'm not sure. Um, mm-hmm. but Bruce Byfield actually gave us a bunch of questions and they were so hard to answer because they were such loaded questions. I mean, 
and he actually when he no, gave him to us, I mean, well, when he gave him to us, he said they're you know they're they're hard hitting questions because this is what I think people want to know. You know, can you answer? And it was you know, so I was glad that he asked them. And I'm well, really, I mean, are they are they are they? Are, I mean, how bad are the questions? Are they when when did you stop beating your wife? Questions or some of, they, some of them are in fact okay. kind of like let me find an example of one. Um, but I, I, I'm, that said, I'm not criticizing Bruce. I think he just, he's doing a good job by asking us those questions. But it was such a funny thing for us to sit down and scratch our heads under a, a quick turnaround time limit and to say boy you know like there's no room to reframe this question um what's a good example so so i mean i think i think that so so what so what is the i mean what, what is the gnome foundation trying to say at this point about it's both about the two issues that matter about about you know are you too influenced by a single company I mean, those are the those are the questions I would ask. Like, like, do you believe you're influenced to to a single company, and, and what's the evidence that you're not? Um, do which I think we've yeah, we've I think addressed. we've pretty much addressed here. But and I, you know, to be, yeah. I think our listeners know me. I don't. Yeah. I wouldn't. You know, I wouldn't be interested in working right. for. An and you would probably lose like, your C three status. You would have lost your C three status oh, so long yeah. ago if there was undue influence from uh, from. Yeah, from and also I just wouldn't be interested in right. working at Gnome if it weren't truly a community project. Um, but uh, but the and the, I think the other question is 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 what you know what is this future plan and and I think it hasn't been laid out for for I think part of the reason the press has had this kind of like feeding frenzy uh, is, is in part because the the plan for Gnome going forward isn't laid out. In a way that it's very easy for people to uh, to comprehend and understand. Do you know what I'm saying? Ah, the question that I was looking for was: yeah. uh, looking back, could anything have been done to prevent the complaints? Right, like looking back, is there anything that you know? Is it, it, it like presumes uh, quite a lot? A lot of these questions have a lot of presumptions in them. So, so how did you answer that question? But don't just read it to give us a, no 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 I wouldn't read it of okay. course um, I'm just refreshing my memory by looking at it but I think you know one of the things that we we said a few things you know one that I said earlier which is that anytime you change you make major changes people will, will will be unhappy no matter what and I think we're gonna we're seeing that in you know I mean KDE saw that we're seeing that in um, you know uh, every time that there's there's a redesign I think we're about to see a lot of really fascinating press covering the Windows 8 release um, so you know there's I think anytime there's a there's a rewrite people are 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 terribly upset but I think um, you know and, and are and are and very vocal about it and actually it's the complaints that get a lot more attention than the positive well and that's and that sort of leads what I want to talk about which is that that um, the tech press is particularly bad at this but the mainstream press does this as well where we're at a point um, in the history of the press in general, that it's very, very expensive to fund and our society is not funding it properly because it's basically funded by advertising now. And there's no real independent that you, you can't just, just, I want to talk know. about this so badly. Can yeah. we come? I just want to finish yeah. the point about the, um, you know, is there anything that we could have done to prevent yeah, but our you just answer that? So, but I didn't I, finish. Okay. Which is to say that the other point that I really wanted to make was that, you know, as a community driven free software project, things take time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and so one of the things that I was sort of saying is, you know, if we could have launched our extensions framework earlier, maybe people would have, you yeah. know, been had fewer complaints. And by the time the extensions framework came out, you know, there was so much negative press already that I, I don't even think people necessarily noticed it. And it's such a major thing. And, you know, and, and, and I, and I guess it was, it was already, already contemplated from the, from the outset. 
And yet, you know, because we're we're a free software project, things happen slowly. We it takes us time. Yeah. Well, and and that's actually really what I was saying is because most if a for-profit company's out there, it's it's out there to sell widgets or sell services, right? That's the two things companies tend to sell. And so they they have a marketing program designed to do that, such that they're they're really trying to sell people something. And um, and when when your when your product is trying to make uh, computing better, trying to make the world a better place, those kinds of things that are that are the kinds of missions that that nonprofit and 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 sort of quasi nonprofit, i.e., unincorporated free software projects tend to have, I think it's a much different conversation that ought to be happening. Which I think journalists, and this is a, the, one of the problems with tech journalists who are used to parroting press, press uh, tech press releases, right? I, and I don't think there's a lot of investigative journalism that goes on in the free software world. I don't think there's in, in the tech world in general i don't think there's actually any sort of real in-depth reporting done by anybody that's and, interesting i don't know i mean because i do know that you know some reporters are you know or some journal some writers some tech writers really do try to you know to do a lot of and actually i respected bruce for coming to you know coming to us and, and asking these questions i complained that they were leading but at least it gives us a chance to mm -hmm. to respond to them you know, and, and I, I, several journalists asked me to respond to that blog post that we were talking about earlier. Uh, but I actually don't think any of those, I, I kept checking and I didn't see that any of those responses were published. No. So, you know, and, well, because, and that's they, the part I, because they're much less exciting. And, well, it's, and, and that's my point is that, is that journalism is link baiting now. It's, it's, it's really who becomes the URL that people pass around on Twitter about something salacious. And, and it's, it's the, you know, it's the TMZ effect to, to, to everything. It's, and it's really, it's, it's oh, really tough make because it's not just limited to the tech press. It's, you know, it's our press overall, which I think is something that you were trying to make, yeah. uh, a point you were trying to make. And one of the yeah. things that's so tragic to me about the fact that journalism nonprofits have gotten, you know, funneled into the same black hole with the IRS yeah. that, free software organizations have is that now is, is such a critical time for journalism. If we can get nonprofit models up and running, that really makes a lot of sense for the future of journalism. You know, why have it, you know, have these nonprofit efforts where you're trying to generate advertising revenues and you're trying to, you're basically trying to scrape for profit uh, models out of journalism when really there's this, this clear public good from, um, from even reporting. So yeah, I, I I think I think that's correct. I think it's it's advertising funded, and and that's and that's always a danger when when your goal is is to is to get linkage because it's just clicks. It's 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 if you can maximize your clicks, it means you maximize your click through to ads, and then suddenly you have money. And and most tech journalists have been that they've been that way for for as long as I've been in the software field basically i mean since since i knew what a tech journalist was uh, it goes back to the 97 era 98 era and one of the things i've done I mean, it's funny because i am I'm, I'm well known for being very radical one of the reasons that i'm never afraid to make radical statements is sort of the the it's the joe biden effect in some ways it's the ability to just say what you think and there's this you know joke that um, people call it a gaffe when a politician says what they actually think hmm. um, and and that's and that's what i've generally done and it's been able to get me a lot of of press coverage which i tried to use for, to my advantage and and i just try to use them as much as they're using me and hope that i can get a message out about free software in the process i mean to some extent it's a really natural tendency and it's a human it's a human i mean this goes back to the all the the concepts that are contained in the demucking myths handbook is that you know it's a natural tendency of people to be interested in certain kinds of things and not others my medical devices work has gotten a tremendous amount of interest because i can say 
you know, I, I, my heart is connected to my software and I could die. You know, it's, it's a very like dramatic point. It's true, but it's, it's a very dramatic point. And I think that people really respond to that. And I don't think, you know, and I think in some ways it's, you know, we can, we can point fingers at the tech press, but it's also, you know, a human nature issue. Yeah, I mean, and also it's. Uh, I saw one. I'm actually trying to look for a, look for a source on this, um, but uh, there, there has there's there's hypotheses in evolution that we actually, as human beings, developed speech uh, it, it, primarily to be able to gossip about each other. That that's and and if you do studies, like most <laughs> most that. most speech, yeah. I mean, there's the I have it on the screen the Wikipedia entry, which I'll link to. Um, but it's basically it. it it's there's some some evolutionary theorists that theorize that, that that's why we develop speech. And if you do studies now, most speech is gossip. It's something like something like like seventy percent of speech is. Is that gossip. true? I saw. Well, wow. I saw that it was the Human Animal series on PBS, and that's where I learned that number from. Um, and so and so it's like we're, mostly we spend our time talking about other people, right? I mean that's and, and talking about what other people did and what we saw and what we know about other people. Which I mean, is think all about very it. useful. I mean, right, exactly. I mean, that's sort of the point is that, I mean, if you think about the conversation Karen and I had before we started recording this podcast, it probably was mostly that. If we, if, I mean, think about Karen, what, what did we just talk about? We mostly talked about other people and what they're doing and what they said and right. what we think they said meant and all that. No, right? it's true. And so, and so that, that, I mean, that's, and, and, and that's the tech press is just, is just living up on that. They, the, 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 the what what you know that what salacious thing did this person say today kind of kind of press and if you like popularity which a lot of us do then you sort of fall into that and you're like well if i say something i'll get i'll get attention yeah and so then it's then it becomes uh, sort of self-fulfilling uh and 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 i don't i don't know and, and having spent my career trying to get a very nuanced message that's complicated out uh and 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 define it in simple terms I, I, you know, it's 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 a challenge constantly because yeah. what they want is a soundbite. You know, I, I mean, they would love me to say they you know, they love to quote me saying that 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 you know Microsoft is destroying uh, free software by by going out and saying GPL is non-American cancerous virus, right? I mean that that's the only time I ever saw a a, a New York Times article about free software was uh, like. Uh, was when Microsoft was saying horrible things and FSF was saying horrible things back about Microsoft and you know. Yeah. I mean that, but I mean that's but that's the level of discourse we have. I, on the other hand, that's it's not new, because if you look at papers from like the 1700s, um, the same sort of things were true in the early age of the printing press. It was true as well. Yeah, I so, mean, I think so it's it, it's like it's it's new, these really. are basic these are basic elements of human nature, and I think that what's tough is that you know I think companies, for example, wind up getting very savvy about how to handle these kinds of issues, and some do it better than others. When they pay people, and a, they lot pay people a lot of money, to money do that who, job. you know, and the debunking myths handbook is just one little source pulling together, you know, uh, from a scientific perspective, some of these issues. But there are folks that are dedicated, obviously, their whole careers to and make a ton of money, you know, and that these are not resources that have been traditionally accessible to us in the free software world, and particularly the community-based projects. So it becomes additionally tough. And so, you know, looking at these questions from this article, um, you know, and, and sitting down and scratching my heads with the other, you know, with the other five people who are volunteering to help me, you know, answer them and, you know, figuring out what the right way is to do so, you know, that's a tremendous amount of effort for us. And it's just one article, you know, and, and, you know, I don't know. I mean, some of the questions, you know, where we were 
super glad that that we were asked, you know, and, and this this happens in every interview, you know, like we were happy to be asked about um, Linux Mint, and, you know, sort of the question was phrased a little bit more in the, you know, how do you feel that Linux Mint has for, you know, GNOME three and, um, you know, and and is is a is a successful alternative, and they wait did Linux Mint didn't fork GNOME three though, well, did they? Yeah. But is it a fork of but, no, but no, but they have, it's, they have it's a little, but it, is, right? it is a little bit different. Well, not quite. But well, what's a little bit different about Linux Mint is that is that you know is that when um, Clem and others at Linux Mint were evaluating GNOME three originally, they said we don't we don't like GNOME three. We want to go to GNOME two. And then when they looked at it further, they said, oh wait, hang on a second. This is really good new technology. Let's build Linux Mint using GNOME three technology. So even though they're not within the the extensions framework right now, it's all within. You know, it's all within the same build, building blocks of our technology and can easily sort of come back as we improve. So what did they have to modify so, in core? That, like, why did they have to fork? Like, what's the reasoning? You know, what I, did they I don't do? I, we should maybe actually see if we can interview Clem because I'd really okay. love to do that. Um, I'd love to get his more, you know, more detail um, because I think basically what happened was they just did it early. So, you know, I think extensions wasn't necessarily as ready yet. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, I mean that, that's that's my opinion. But but what's great about Linux Mint is its total validation of GNOME three technologies and the, its popularity and how fast it became popular. I think is is a real evidence of that. So you know I'm happy to point to that and sort of say you know this is you know this is actually really cool. <laughs> and you know GNOME actually always takes a long you know GNOME has taken a long term view of of its project and you know and I think that. Um, that's that's a really important to pay attention to, and I think that's one of the things that's connected to the bad feedback that was, you know, that we experienced at GNOME two, <laughs> and the bad feedback we experienced at GNOME three is that it takes time, and um, you know, and creating this useful technology that um, you know that is already demonstrated to be useful in its bits, let alone in its whole, is incredible. So you know, it's funny because I think one of the criticisms that we've sort of had recently is that GNOME three has no goals. You know, GNOME has no goals now, but it's like, are you kidding me? You know, GNOME just, you know, it was, you know, not even two years ago, like a year and a half ago, that GNOME 3 was released, you know, where a whole new vision of, um, you know, of GNOME was conceived upon, executed, and now refined. So, you know, with it, we're about to release uh, 3.6 next month. Um, you know, what's what's amazing about that is just that there's, you know, that is such an incredible goal and it's such an example of, of, of achieving it. So, you know, it's, it's just fascinating to me. And then the idea that, you know, the, the other criticism that is often, and I'm doing the debunking myths thing that I said I wasn't going to do and stating the things that, um, you know, I, I, I disagree with first, which is tough. But, um, but people say that, you know, that GNOME doesn't listen and that the developers aren't listening to its criticisms. But if you look at all of the improvements and refinements, in 3.2.3.4 and what's coming out in 3.6, so much of that is a reaction to the complaints that we've received. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, GNOME is just getting better and better. And, you know, yes, I'm paid to say that, but not paid enough to stay at a job I don't care about. Yeah, <laughs> so, um, you know, it's... And, and the funny thing is people have forgotten how hard of a time KDE4 took. I mean, that's part of the part of the funniness, too, is that there was a non-ending backlash against KDE4. It seemed non-ending at the time, which I haven't heard in years. I don't use KDE, so I don't know. But I, I certainly in the mainstream tech press, the KDE stuff eventually subsided, and and it was sort of became the the last revision of that history. And if you if you treat it as like as like a Git repository that kept getting committed to, the last revision sort of says GNOME four was released too early, and four point one fixed everything, right? And that's how the last revision got wrote. 
um, pretty much. Um, so I, I mean, it's just interesting that that went on and on and on. And, right, right. and I don't, I don't, really, I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm again, I'm, well, I don't care if I'm spreading a myth about KDE because uh, I'm not advocating KDE necessarily, but I think that that's, that's what the, the tech, now, I, I have no clue whether that's true or yeah, not. Yeah, I'm sort of shrugging my shoulders on it because I've seen, you know, I obviously follow the desktop press quite yeah. closely. And what cracks me up is that in the same week, I have seen KDE is dead, GNOME is dead, Unity is dead. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, no, like, I'm just talking about the KDE, the specific KDE 4 release story. It, no, well, and the yeah. KDE 4 release story was also mentioned in the KDE is dead. Okay. You know, so, I, you know, I think that, that that's what's tough, too, is that, and it's tough when you follow the tech press to figure out what actually is going on. Well, I think that it's, I, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't think it's actually a useful source for, of information, for ultimately. I mean that's the problem. But that's that's our only source of information, truly, when it comes down to it. I don't agree with that. I mean, I, I mean, I, I think that that I just assume I don't know what's going on unless I investigate it by going and reading. I mean, free, the nice thing about free software is, and this is, I mean, I, I have it easy because I only work in free software and it's all I pay attention to, basically. But I can go figure out what's actually going on by just reading the mailing list of the project themselves right and 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 the times i just assume i know nothing until i've spent i've read the last three months of, of a mail of like some projects mailing list right i mean that's and and i've i, I there are times when i've done that when i need to know i mean obviously no, and my I, working conservancy requires me to do this sometimes but i have to yeah. go get up to speed on a project real and, quick and I, think, I don't read anything believe anything i've read i think we all do that I mean, we people who care about following free software projects as we go and reread the mailing lists but it I can't do that for everything. I, I do wind up taking the tech press word on a lot of things to get a climate of what's going on. And, you know, sometimes I, and then especially when it happens with a project I'm so familiar with, like GNOME, it's sort of like, well, you know, what else don't I know kind of thing. It's yeah. like, you know, I don't know. We always joke about the New York Times and say that if the New York Times, by the time the New York Times is writing about a trend happening, the trend is over, mm -hmm. you know, and when the New York Times publishes an article about something you know deeply about, uh, whether it's a scientific issue or something mm. it, they always get a lot of things wrong and you're sort of like wow yeah that's unbelievable well, and then you realize oh my gosh you know what yeah. what don't i know about you know all these other things yeah i just don't believe i don't believe anything you know i read basically and yeah and, but I it's don't. tough to do that you need to at some point you need to take things for granted in order to be educated about what's going on in the world i don't know what's going on in the world uh, whatever world you're considering. Well, in free software world, I know what's going on. You know, like in, this, in, in the specifics when I need to, and I dig down by just reading mail. Right? You know, I just like chase I haven't threads. had time to read the, you know, the Apple Samsung decision, but I read the Grok Law and the Buzzle Law posts and the other stuff about it, and you know, I know I feel like I have a decent idea of what what happened. Maybe. Well, it's being appealed yeah. anyway, so. I mean, well, sure. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I mean, I think. Uh, I, I, yeah, I, I think, I think that people, I, I, what I try to do is not have opinions on things I don't know about, right? And right. so I don't have opinions on a lot of things. I, I see, That's I used to, when I was though. younger, I used to have a lot of opinions on a lot of things. And I don't have opinions on a lot of things anymore because I don't know enough to have an opinion on them. So that's what I just do. And I mean, the, the, the frustration I have is that, is that because I know my opinions are, are so well researched on things, that uh that i do know about um i've I, I have a frustrating time in the world because the the times when something intersects something i know about most people go around like not taking opinions that seriously basically generally speaking because all their opinions are shallowly informed 
and they have opinions on everything and they're used to having a shallowly informed, shallowly informed opinion. I basically don't have opinions on a lot of stuff anymore. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think a lot of people are, I mean, this is why the, again, myths are so prevalent and so hard to get rid of is because people make, some, you know, internalize what they hear. And if it's a strong message, that's the stronger they'll, you know, internalize it. Yeah. And I don't know. I mean, I, I find it hard not to form, form opinions on things. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm on the busy box. People can find this. I'm on the busy box mailing list, again, because the thread revitalized about the, the, the Sony stuff, right? And that's been resolved. And I post a message to the list explaining how I work to resolve it and so forth. And it's coming up again. There's people, there is a person on the busy box mailing list saying, Sony wants this, Sony wants that. And, I, and I'm like, how do you know at this point? I mean, I, as far as I can tell, the evidence is what one person said about Sony on LWN four months ago, right? And I've had conversations with that person multiple times since then. So, and, and, and it's, it's about internalizing something that they read once, right? And that's really what it's yeah, about. And, yeah. and there's confirmation bias and there's, there's a lot of different types of psychological biases that people use uh, to, uh, that, that cause things to, to snowball. Yep. And then there's also, you know, sort of, you know, people get confused about their emotional positions on things versus the factual bases. And, you know, and that's, I, I, I'm thinking, I think I got on, went on a tangent because in my mind, I'm reminded of all of these, you know, I'm, I'm, I am nine months pregnant and, you know, about to have a, a baby and, um, and attending and reading about attending classes and reading about things related to childbirth and child rearing, you know, a lot of the science in a lot of these things is not very good. Um, or there are a few studies or studies that contradict each other. And, um, a lot of the people that are espousing their opinions have, you know, have agendas and, you know, pointing that out isn't a very popular position to do in these circumstances. Um, so, you know, on a more, you know, in a, in a slightly different view, I totally agree with you because it's, you know, it's something I've been coming up against in the, you know, in the, in, in a completely separate field. Mm-hmm. So, really so you should raise the child with a, in a Vulcan way of life. <laughs> and that's we need to, to move towards a Vulcan philosophy. Uh, and how would that apply to whether or not one should breastfeed or whether or not it's appropriate to let a child cry out, you know, cry or, you know, for sleep training? Um, well, you'd have to, you'd have to use and, logic. And, to, and how would that apply to whether or not women should have um, anesthesia during childbirth? Um, well, you'd have to figure out the, the science and the logic, which nobody, you're saying nobody's done because they're all... They're, well, I mean, I, I mean, there are... I mean, I'm saying nobody's done. I mean, it's a, you know, people, people do evaluate these questions from a scientific perspective, but, you know, it's tough to sort out what is, you know, what is legitimate science and what is not, what is, you know, what studies are funded by which parts of which business, which, you know. Well, but that's part, that's, that's the, that's the corruption of the empire, though. There's nothing we can do about that, probably, because we'll have to let the empire fall. I mean, well, there's, there's a lot of issues. There's a lot of problems. Well, my, I mean, my point is, is that companies control so much, in the, and we're talking about the United States specifically, but it's probably true in, in, in it's true the industrialized world. The, the, the for-profit companies uh, are deciding a lot of things. But then we also have a lot of cultural biases that come to play here. Yeah, but the companies are now just using all of those to, to get their aims. It's, it's really disturbing. Well, what's interesting, well, I, I mean, I don't, I don't want to, there, I don't want to go off on the, the baby making thing too strongly. So I'll, I'll, I'll save this for after we're finished. 
Okay. Um, so I'll just say that. So are we finished? I guess I guess we are. Okay. So I have mean, you said everything you needed to say about the, the defense of GNOME? Have you defended no, GNOME? No, I, I, I think we could go on for another few hours about it. And, um, you know, and in some, in some instances, I'd be happy to. But I also am aware of the debunking myths handbook that if we go on too long and talk about too many things, then there'll be too many things to take away. You know, you should investigate for yourself and, um, and give these things a try. Um, you know, I, I don't want to get, have people have the impression that, um, that every reporter and every tech press article isn't, you know, is, is terrible. I just, you know, I just think that sometimes these press points are, are really frustrating. And if you're faithful to community-based free software projects, you know, I think you have to especially take these things with a little bit of a grain of salt and, and make the extra effort to um, investigate the projects themselves and, uh, and give them the benefit of the doubt because that's basically what's, what's driving them to exist is a lot of independent interest. Um, and a lot of motivation and projects do die of their own accord over time. Um, and while they continue to exist, especially ones that are, you know, are community based are often, um, the product of the kind of interest that is sometimes stated as missing from them. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll <laughs> Thank have Chris you. Weber next week or next episode and, uh, for, for three, one. And, uh, we look forward to, uh, talk, telling you about his work. See you then. Freeze and Freedom is produced by Dan Lynch of PodFactory and can be found at podfactory.org. Thanks to Mike Tarantino for our theme music. This episode of Freeze and Freedom is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 United States license. You can follow Freeze and Freedom, Bradley, and Karen on Identica and also read Bradley's and Karen's blogs. Links can be found on the Freeze and Freedom website, faith.us. That's F-A-I-F dot us. That's F-A-I-F.us.